Welcome to Earth Matters, environment and social justice stories from Australia and across the globe. This episode of Earth Matters was produced in the studios of 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the great Kulin Nation. We acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders, past, present and emerging, and to First Peoples listening today. Earth Matters is going out across Australia via the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Judith Peppard, and today we'll be hearing about an extraordinary little bird, the purple-crowned fairy wren. I'm sure you've seen fairy wrens. They're all over Australia, most beautiful little birds. But this one is different, as you'll find out. It lives in strips of vegetation along rivers and creeks in Australia's northern tropical savanna, which extends all the way from Cairns in Queensland to Derby in Western Australia, an area prone to wildfire with many wildlife populations in decline. The purple-crowned fairy wren is one of those populations. It's classified as endangered, with only an estimated 7,000 birds remaining in the wild. And as this species is a biological indicator of ecosystem health, well, they can tell us a lot. On today's show, we meet Anne Peters and Nikki Tunison, two scientists who've been studying the purple crown fairy wren for almost two decades. Here's Anne. I'm a professor in biological sciences at Monash University. I've been studying the purple crown fairy wren population at Mornington Wildlife Sanctuary in Kimberley since 2005. What about you, Nikki? Um, so I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Wageningen University in the Netherlands and an adjunct researcher at Monash University. And I've been studying the Purple Crown Fairens with Anne since 2014. And you have been conducting research for around two decades now in Australia's northern tropical savanna. And you describe what it is generally. With the northern tropical savannas, we refer to the type of landscape we get sort of across the Kimberley and into the Northern Territory at Queensland, that sort of broad northern tropical region characterized by seasonal rainfall. So there is a wet season, but exactly how much rain and exactly when it falls is fairly unpredictable. So that's the climate cycle. And then in terms of the landscape, uh, savannah in general is uh, mostly grassy with uh, sparse woodland trees. Most people, when they hear savannas, they think of the savannas of Africa with elephants roaming and lions and all that. But we have our own savannas and they're at least as fantastic. They are characterized by visually similar grasslands, of course, very different species and our wonderful trees, the eucalypts and the boabs. And then in that landscape, we study the waterways. So we study birds that exclusively live along waterways, so creeks. And those waterways, of course, go up and down with the season, how much water they have. And the savanna, because it goes through these cycles of rainfall and then drying out, and rainfall and drying out is very susceptible to fire. Because that dry vegetation at the end of the, the dry season is just like just like kindling. It goes up very, very easily. Since the, the sort of Western fire regimes, pastoralist grazing and all that, that landscape has been quite substantially diminished in its functionality and, and in its biodiversity. 
And one of the factors that's used to improve that is uh, a type of fire that is lit by humans that resembles what the uh, traditional custodians have been doing tens of thousands of years, which is early burning in small batches. Yeah, and managing country. You you hear yeah. that so often in so many different contexts. I'm wondering, do you remember the first time you saw a purple-crowned fairy, Wren? Yes, it was the 30th of July, 2005, very early in the morning. And how did you feel? Oh, well, I was very relieved because I just spent a lot of money and, and bought a vehicle and started a research program, never having seen one. Uh, so I was very relieved to see one and to see how how amenable they were to being seen. So I'm going to ask you, Nikki, do you remember the moment you first saw a purple crown fairy wren? I do remember the moment. My memory is not as precise as Anne. I can't remember the exact date. I know it was sometime in April in 2014, <laughs> early in the morning as well. And yeah, I found it I found it amazing how easy the birds were to see at Mornington. It was quite good getting the first view of a purple crown fairy and with a bit of purple on its head which is amazing because they don't have that all year round. They only really get that mainly during the breeding season. And then the rest of the year, the males just have like a plain brown head and they don't look quite as impressive. And so you mentioned Mornington. What what are you talking about there? What are you referring to? So that's Australian Wildlife Conservancy's Mornington Wildlife Sanctuary. So that's right in the heart of the Kimberley. It's about an eight hour drive from Broome, which is the nearest like bigger town. And that's where we have been studying these purple crown fairies for such a long time. And I'm just coming back to you because that's a long time to study yes. one little bird. And there are many uh, species in the area that are either vulnerable or endangered. So I imagine there yes. were many to, to choose from. What has attracted you to it and, and how have you kept going? What attracted me to it at the time I was based in Germany, actually, I was not yet uh, an academic in Australia. And I wrote a proposal for a fellowship because I was interested in understanding the diversity of communication amongst animals. And I was particularly interested in animals that used multiple channels of communication. Nikki already mentioned the beautiful coloration of the male purple crown fairy. Now, the female purple crown fairy also has a very nice breeding plumage. It's not as gaudy as the male, but it is very attractive in, a, in an understated sort of way. They also engage in communication uh, by singing duets. The male and the, the paired adults, they, they sing together in, a, in an orchestrated duet. Which is very interesting and not terribly common. And it is often associated with, with actual monogamy. So with pairs that live together and that mate exclusively, that breed exclusively. Fairy wrens in general live in social monogamous groups, but they are world-renowned, I can really say that, for being very unfaithful. I think it was David Attenborough we have to blame for the reputation <laughs> that fairy yes. wrens have. But in the case of the purple-crowned fairy wren, it's a little different? It's different. So for all the other fairy wrens, that reputation is well-deserved. Purple crowns, not. The male and the female that live together also mate together, and the young are the offspring of the father and the mother that they grow up with. And that's quite interesting because they are closely related to all these other fairy wrens. They're just as beautiful, but they do this duetting. They have this monogamous 
relationships, which we didn't know when I started. So that was the first thing I set out to prove. So that was the things that attracted me. And the other thing is that they are cooperative breeders, which means just like other fair events, the breeding pair is helped by subordinate offspring. And that is also an evolutionary puzzle because we have to ask ourselves, why are they doing that? Instead of setting up their own turf, their own breeding group, why do they help? Uh, yes. That's actually what Nikki has been working on for pretty much eight out of 10 years of her tenure, <laughs> but it's a very unusual combination. So it's got a lot of things that make it very interesting. And on top of that, it is endangered. Nikki, tell us what you've been doing. For most of my time studying the Purple Ground Fairings, I've been looking at their social behavior. So I really wanted to understand why these birds live in these bigger social groups and why you get some birds that choose to stay at home with mom and dad or whoever the dominant breeding pair is and help them to raise their young instead of choosing to leave the group and try to find a breeding spot for themselves and get their own chance at breeding. Because this is a really puzzling behavior. It doesn't really seem to make sense when you think of it from an evolutionary perspective. You should care about having your own offspring passing from your own genes. So why are you helping someone else to raise their young? I did a lot of research on it and looked at all the different ways in which those birds can help in the group. And we found that they, they can help by bringing food to the chicks in the nest. They can also help by defending against predators that might attack their, their adult group members or the chicks or the eggs in the nest. And what's really interesting is that it, it looks like such an altruistic behavior to help those other birds out. But actually, I showed that it's not really that altruistic at all. They're still looking after themselves, but they're playing the long game. Nikki Tunison, talking about the purple crowned fairy wrens, playing the long game. But how do they do that? They are really picky in who they help when it comes to who they feed and who they protect from predators. And it's the young that they help are ones that are really likely to return the favor in the future. And the adult birds and they help are they the ones that are either their relatives or their birds that they might get a chance to mate with themselves in the future. So they're ultimately just looking out for their own interests, which is fascinating. Now, I also have to ask, how does one find out those things? With lots of patience and dedication. The way in which we can follow the birds in the population is because we put these little collared leg bands on all of the birds. So each bird has uh, essentially two little bracelets on its legs that have a different combination of colors for each bird. So it means that we can go out into the field, walk through all the dense riparian vegetation, get covered in prickles, trying to find our birds, look at them with binoculars. And then by seeing those collared leg bands, we can tell who's who. So that's how we can track individuals and that's how we know where each bird was born and who its parents are and who its siblings are and uh, we can watch them and see which young they help to raise when they might leave the group and become a breeder themselves and have their own offspring. That's how we get all that detailed information about who's who. Obviously a lot of observing. We spend a lot of time in the wet season finding their nests and then tracking their nest and spending many, many hours just watching what the birds do at the nest, how much food they bring, who brings the food, what type of food is it. And I've been placing like cameras at nests as well to look at what sort of predators come and attack the nest. So what are the predators that you've been finding? It's quite diverse. A lot of nest predation 
used to be by goannas, uh, so modern lizards, much less so now that cane toads have arrived at the field side and, and decreased their numbers. But we also see a lot of predation by predatory birds, so things like goshawks, pheasant cuckoos, uh, mm-hmm. even cuckoos. Cuckoos leave their own eggs in other people's nests? Yes. So cuckoos will sometimes go and take a pair and egg out and replace it with their own. But they'll also sometimes just come to a nest and just take an egg and eat it. Nikki Tunison, describing the predators of the purple-crowned fairy wren. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. And we've been hearing from Ann Peters and Nikki Tunison from Monash University. They've written an article entitled Fire in Northern Australia's Tropical Savanna, a Threat to Endangered Fairy Wrens. Here's Anne again. I started being very interested in, in this visual and vocal communication system. And of course, because they are cooperative breeders, we are also integrating that. And I was interested in the genetic mating system because I thought they would be monogamous, which they were. We got more and more interested in the interactions with the birds, with the environment. So the birds with the ecology, with the vegetation, with the climates, with the threats, and also, you know, what the crossovers are there. To what extent is the fact that the, the disease cooperative breeder, is that a good thing as conditions change or does it make them inflexible? And I guess the, the birds themselves might be capable of changing their minds about what they do <laughs> if the conditions change. Or am I totally naive? No, you are very unnaive because I think one of the things that makes the program very events so fascinating is how incredibly flexible they are. They breed and respond to rain. That is not terribly novel. It makes them very flexible. They breed in response to just a little bit of rain. And if it then rains a lot, that's not great for them. They nest round. And so then they, they rebreed. Um, and that they can do that in response to new rain or in response to other conditions, which we haven't yet fully identified, I must in all honesty admit. So there's been years where there was hardly any breeding at all. And then I think the longest stretch where they've been continuously breeding is now almost two years. When conditions are good, they just power on. I do want to come back now to fires, which was one of the topics addressed in in your paper. And you've mentioned First Nations fire practices. The other thing about the fires, of course, is they must be changing with climate change. What are you seeing? Uh, Maybe I'll come to you, Anne, on this one. So what are you seeing with the fires? Like what's changing and what are you recommending? Essentially, on a, on a landscape scale, we need to recognize that the sort of the, the fire management applied across the Kimberley started changing. So across a broader and broader area of the Kimberley, we now have a fire management regime that much more closely resembles that of the First Nations people that they had prior to European settlement and pastoralism. So this is a fire management that is applied across Uh, protected land by the AWC, but also uh, across uh, pastoral leases and and other uh, protected areas. I don't think it would be possible because of that to make definitive statements on what the effect of climate change is, because there was that change in the fire management regime. We know what climate change generally does. Uh, It makes um, things more unpredictable and it makes fires hotter and more devastating and larger, just because of how um, rainfall gets more concentrated in shorter amounts of time. 
so the the total rainfall is not forecast to change, but the the spread of it. So it becomes more unpredictable and and more intermittent, and that is leads to more concentrated fuel. And then if you do not apply fire management, you get massive end of dry season fires that just destroy vast areas of land. Now, the fire regimes that are currently applied take place in the early dry season. So when when most of the rain is falling, most of the vegetation has grown up a bit. And then the fires are easier to keep under control because it's still wetter by burning off the vegetation. Then you get a reduction in fuel. Some of it will grow back, but there's then not enough to fuel these mega fires. So that's the fire in the savannah. And we were concerned with fire in the creek lines. There's two things about creek lines. Creek lines can be conduits for fire. So if, they, if the fire gets in, it goes through, becomes a fire highway. But they can also be used to burn against. So they can become a fire break. Our contribution well, I should say Nikki's contribution, so I'm going to start, stop talking shortly and get her to answer the rest, was that we, in detail, investigated the effect of two types of fire that occurred in the early, dry, late, wet season. So, Nikki, you can take over now. We looked at two fires that came through our study site over the course of this two-decade-long study. So, as Anne said, both fires occurred during the late, wet, early, dry season. But one of them was in a extremely dry year. So as a result of that, it acted like a really intense fire that you would normally see late in a dry season. So we were able to compare the effect of those two fires, that low intensity one and that high intensity one, on the purple ground fair end population that we study at Mornington. And because these fair ends rely exclusively on these riparian zones, they're a really good species to study to understand the more general impacts of fire on these riparian zones, which are important for a whole range of different species. So we can use this as a neat model system. We looked at all sorts of demographics of the fairings before and after the fire. So we looked at their survival rates, we looked at their movements, and we looked at their breeding behavior. And what we found is that any fire, whether it's low or high intensity, will impact population numbers for at least two and a half years, but the effect of a high intensity fire is much bigger. So we saw a reduction of 50% of fair and numbers in that burned area after the intense fire. How did that feel? Not great. It was, it was very sad to see that coming back to that area shortly after the fire and just seeing how the vegetation looked, it was hard to imagine how it would really come back to the way it was before the fire. Yes, and you must have known individually the wrens. I mean, you must have been able to see which ones didn't come back. That that must have been so hard. Yeah, but what was really interesting is that at first the impact on the wrens themselves didn't actually look that bad after the really intense fire. So we saw these like reductions in population numbers, but we wanted to know how the fire has resulted in that decline in population numbers. And what we found is that when that low intensity fire came through, it had an effect on the breeding success of the birds. So we didn't see as many offspring being produced in that burnt area after the fire. And then with that high intensity fire, we saw that it had a different effect on the population. So there we found that it resulted in the, in the death of adult birds that were living in that area. 
But interestingly, that didn't happen during the fire itself. So when we first came back shortly after the fire, most of the birds were still alive. But it was in the two to eight months after that, that we saw a lot of those birds disappear. It's probably because that fire had such a massive impact mm -hmm. on that riparian vegetation, really reducing the quality of the habitat that they were living in. Yes. That that probably resulted in their death. So it could be that they, you know, were struggling to find enough food, so enough insects to eat after the fire. It was really hot in there. They were struggling to find shelter from the heat that they normally would have been able to find or it might be that they're just more exposed to predators they can find them more easily when it's open after a fire so we're not quite sure about which which of those factors would have caused their deaths or it might be a combination of all but it shows the really severe impact that a high intensity fire has on riparian zones yes and it also shows that all of the creatures affected are going to have an yeah. impact on the purple crown fairy wren and vice versa, you know, uh, that these things, as you would know, I'm sure, are all interconnected. All of those things you've just described are interconnected. So I can see that there's another 20-year uh, study um, coming up. Absolutely. I mean, uh, so, so currently we're really focusing on the impact of climate change. What will climate change do and what can we, uh, with our management strategies, uh, do to, to climate-proof? Uh, these these wildlife populations because mm -hmm. um, it's the same with the fire you can't just say okay we should never burn if we do this patchy burning in the early dry season we should never burn riparian zones that is a very risky strategy because then if a fire comes in it can go through like i said those fire highways so what we recommended is to make little little cuts in the vegetation and do it at exactly the right time and then have some buffers around the riparian so like like well. little so, fire like little fire breaks well, fire breaks yes yeah. it, because you need to like fire does happen we know it happens yeah. it's a naturally yeah. fire prone system mm. so uh and we want to do the same sort of things with climate change what is the best vegetation management um also how do the birds respond are they actually quite insensitive maybe they're fine and then the other thing we're looking at is flooding uh, because that is also set to increase and become that's more right. difficult and looking at interactions and then looking across the landscape because a lot of this habitat is quite fragmented so we're branching out more and more onto a landscape study seeing how far do they go again with the ultimate aim which is which is a while away I, i'll be, be honest to get more populations so when, once other areas are protected and better fire managed and if vegetation is good, can we then do some assistance to bring birds there? And what does do we need in order to make that happen? My last question, you've already answered in a way, as you, both of you, as you've spoken. Um, why do you love the work you do, <laughs> Nikki? That's a good question. And it's a very big question. I love the work that I do for many reasons. But I think one of the things I love most about it is that every thing that I learn about these variants, it just makes me more curious and want to learn more. It's a never ending cycle, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and, and obviously very stimulating. And what about you? Uh, for me, it's the privilege, the privilege of being able to go there and you just turn up and there's a bird there and it's just scratching away its own life. And we, we are able to go there and watch them doing their own thing. I know there's lofty things as well, uh, that drive me absolutely want to make a difference and a contribution to the world but at a deep deepest personal level is the privilege 
of seeing animals do their own thing. Ann Peters. And before that, you heard Nikki Tunison on what they love about the research they've been doing for almost two decades now. And a bit like Nikki, there was just one more thing I wanted to find out before we finished our conversation. I wanted to know more about the duets the Purple Crown Fairy Wrens perform. Here's Ann Peters again. So when they sing a duet, you need to be quite a well-trained observer to notice. And so it just sounds louder than a single bird singing and faster from the recording. If you don't know what you're looking for, quite hard to make out that it's actually two birds singing. It's easier if you see them because they, they take a particular posture and they face each other and lift their, their heads a bit. And uh, so it's quite characteristic. Um, if you think of birds around that that listeners might be familiar with, um, the magpie lark, the Australian magpie lark, is also a duetter. So they sing duets. And they also take this posture, quite a similar posture, that the breeding pair faces each other. They really stand up, raise their heads, puff out their chest. And, they, uh, and so we think it's a territorial thing. It's a pair defending a territory acoustically. If someone is interested in, in going out and observing a duet, if you follow a bunch of magpie larks long enough, at some stage they will do it. You might need a few hours, but at some stage they will do it, and particularly very early in the morning, so within the first half hour, hour after dawn. Well, I'm excited now about getting out early in the morning to watch some magpie larks, sometimes called mudlarks, sometimes called peewees. I want to see if I can hear a duet. We're coming to the end of Earth Matters, and I want to thank Anne Peters and Nikki Tunison from Monash University for making time for our conversation and sharing what they've learned about the Purple Crowned Fairy Wren over many years of research. I'll put a link to their paper, Fire in Northern Australia's Tropical Savannah is a Threat to Endangered Fairy Wrens, on our website. Or you could just Google the title of the paper, and it will come up. And you can find out more about the Australian Wildlife Conservancy at Mornington Marion Downs, where Anne and Nikki conduct their research, by going to the AWC website, www.australianwildlifealloneword.org, and look for Mornington Marion Downs. And there will also be a link to an article on the world-recognized fire management practices of First Nations peoples, that have been adopted across Australia's northern tropical savannah. The article's entitled, The World's Best Fire Management System is in Northern Australia, and it's led by Indigenous land managers. And you can also find out more about that program on the Australian Wildlife Conservancy website. Thank you for joining us today on Earth Matters, and thanks to the Community Radio Network for their work in broadcasting today's episode and bringing it to you and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. Earth Matters is produced on Wurundjeri and Bunurong country at 3CR Community Radio Station in Nam, Melbourne, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. I'm Judith Peppard signing out for today, and do tune in again next week for more environment and social justice stories.